Hello, you wonderful people. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up to our Patreon account. The link will be in the description of this podcast, but you can also go to patreon.com forward slash Pod. For as little as four euros a month, you can help us out and become part of our little community. You'll get early access to all of the pods and you'll also get a monthly newsletter from myself and Jim. So basically two monthly newsletters where we'll talk about stuff that's going on in our own personal lives and what we've been thinking about slash inspired about. We also are asking you guys to get involved with the podcast so you can send in questions for our upcoming guests or you can suggest to us people or topics you would like us to interview and explore further. Um, We love you. We hope that you love us and hopefully just by giving us as little as four euros a month, that's basically, it's not even a pint in London that you can help us become an even better podcast. Thank you all. Hello friends, welcome back. This week we chat to environmental activist Manuel Salazar, who has been associated with the organization Extinction Rebellion in Ireland since its inception in 2018. Extinction Rebellion is a global environmental movement with the stated aim of using non-violent civil disobedience to compel government action to avoid tipping points in the climate system, biodiversity loss and the risk of social and ecological collapse. The media that I consume often depict Extinction Rebellion as quite extreme and lacking a clear structure with which to achieve their aims. Their aim. I invited Manuel on to talk about this and much more. For anyone frustrated at the lack of large-scale environmental response or who feel heavily judged by environmentalists for not living a carbon-conscious lifestyle, this podcast is for you. This is a well-rounded chat with someone who deeply cares about the state of our planet and who is willing to sacrifice a lot to demonstrate this passion. If you want to learn more about Manuel and or Extinction Rebellion, please check out the links below. Thanks to Manuel for his time. All the best friends. friends welcome back to the podcast this week we have manuel of extinction rebellion manuel what's the crack how are you hi guys um hi Seth and jim thanks everything is great it's absolutely fantastic we have um, a wonderful time over here in ireland um i would say in the summertime uh for the good reasons i suppose uh but yeah everything is fantastic good great to hear i am um... I'd love to know, uh, you told me before you're originally from Venezuela, I'd love to know maybe a, a bit about yourself growing up and and how did the, when were the seeds first planted for your kind of um, commitment to the movement of the Extinction Rebellion? Yes, uh, basically uh, I was born in Colombia actually and my parents moved to Venezuela when the country became rich uh, on oil. Uh, ironically so uh, I was raised in Venezuela uh, you know for uh, I was there for about uh, 25 years uh, before I left but uh, during that time uh, I witnessed basically what uh, an oil industry can do to a country and to the environment as well so I I grew up in in the capital in Caracas and we have a nature right next to us so like uh, the coastline is just basically 30 kilometers from the, from the capital, but also mountains are, you know, right next to the capital as well. The capital is on a valley. So then uh, uh, we are used to it, basically, to interact all the time with nature. 
and then to, you can see, you know, over time or during my time, then it was uh, um, deteriorating or it was completely, you know, going down in terms of air pollution, uh, the pollution of our rivers as well. And then uh, we heard cases, we started getting cases in the 1980s about uh, oil companies taking uh, the land of indigenous people in the Amazon because uh, we have part of the Amazon as well. It's not only Brazil, but Venezuela also has a part of those. So during my teenager time, and um, I went down there to, to uh, not, just, not just to explore, obviously, the, to see the beauty of the country, but also to realize that uh, uh, development or progress, what we call, you know, of these all industries, it, it means for, for the indigenous is basically taking their land, their ancestral land, and, and also pollute uh, all the environment around them. So that triggers on me, obviously, um, a very strong feeling about protecting the environment. And I started joining uh, environmental groups uh, down there in Venezuela and protect also, uh, you know, everything that is to do with, uh, you know, the animal kingdom and, and what it means actually climate change. Um, at the time, my scientists obviously were telling us about what is happening around the world and with the earth. And then I, I caught up with that very quickly. And, and getting, you know, slowly, slowly getting involved in, in, in all of this. Uh, civil disobedience wasn't in my mind at all. So at the time, uh, I would say then civil disobedience happened more at the social side. So because they, there's a, a huge gap between what is the rich and poor. No, not really in, in regards of uh, racism, you know, we, we are all, all dark there. And we, we mix also with white people as well. We've, uh, we have a mix between Europeans and, and South Americans there. So it's not much that. But uh, it's, it, it was more economical. So then, but the environment wasn't talk at all. You know, we were living with it, but we accept as well then because we were an oil industry. So then pollution somehow it was belonged to it and it was a kind of normalized, despite many of us knew that that was not the case. So then when I was 25 years old and then a new regime come into, in, into power, so it was a military regime. So it was Hugo Chavez and, and all of that uh, concept of the left. So I decided to leave the country also to realize I, I wanted to know more about the world, you know, um, and, and also to, uh, to develop myself, you know, in, in other areas. Then over time, I, I live in, in five, six countries formally, in India, in Israel, I live also in Germany, um, and then in Germany, I realized how important it's actually nature for them and what it means, you know, what, what does it mean to what, what people that basically to the environment and how they can deal with it. Uh, so that was uh, two or three years over there. And then uh, in 2005, uh, I came over to Ireland and technology strategy. So it was very good for IT. And then uh, here in Ireland, then I realized also that nature is really, really important uh, and it's a uh, it's, it's very spiritual place. So I, I decided to stay and, and I became Irish. So then uh, over time, I joined Friends of um, uh, the Green Party. Uh, so I have some connections with Friends of the Earth as well and other people. But at the end, when Extinction Rebellion came, so it was, it, it, I actually saw it as the answer because uh, we were in such a, crisis or we are in a such a crisis in regards of the climate and and these measures came from the top from the UN and also for the IPCC uh, you know people that uh, definitely civil disobedience at that time in 2018-2019 made sense to me so I decided to join Extinction Rebellion I was one of the first ones joining here in Ireland and then uh, that's, that's how we started 
Manuel, can, can you tell us for something? I mean, I know you guys have been in the news and in the press recently mm-hmm. and stuff, but for someone who maybe hasn't um, seen what you're, what, you, what you're about, what can you tell us what the Extinction Rebellion stands for? And maybe just some of the um, more eye-catching things that you guys have done that maybe people would have seen or heard of. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, in summary, we've done lots, right? Um, the movement started in the UK uh, in around uh, 2018, 2019, really. Then uh, when they started with the, so we are a global movement, basically, uh, that uh, fights the climate change. Um, and we focus uh, basically in highlighting what climate change is and bring awareness uh, to, to people. Uh, but uh, we also make the governments accountable and corporations accountable, basically the main offenders accountable for everything they have done for, for, for the, for, against the environment, basically. So then uh, we stand, um, um, we use civil disobedience as our main way of, uh, you know, combat climate change. And we have uh, different steps that we follow to apply those civil disobedience. So we base um, our techniques basically on the Gandhi movement and also on the Martin Luther King movement as well. So of nonviolence. So, so whatever we do out there, whatever action we apply to it, you know, in favor and, of course, highlighting uh, the issue of climate change. And so we do it in a non-violent way. So we use a system that is holocratic, so there is no leaders in, in, in Extinction Rebellion. And that happens all around the world as part of the, the, the HITOS. We have 10 principles uh, that we have to follow. And as long as you follow that 10 principles, you can call yourself XR. And one of those principles is to be non-violent, Another principle is uh, to be inclusive, okay? Um, another, another principle is uh, to be uh, open also to other opinions and, and also be committed to, to the environment itself. So that's basically what the movement base is. And then to what we've done so far to, um, here in Ireland is uh, we have done some block of, uh, uh, blocking of uh, streets. Uh, they, we have techniques that is called swarming, and basically we block the streets for um, seven minutes, right? So then when we stop the, the traffic, so some of the, we call rebels ourselves, we go and talk to people about uh, climate change. We ask the people to turn off their engines uh, for the environment, and we start talking about climate change. And we explain that they're going to be there just only for seven minutes. We give them some, some biscuits or some, some treats or so to start a conversation with them. We explain why we are there. Then after seven minutes, we open basically the, the streets that people then can go for 10 minutes and we block again. And we do that for at least two or three hours. So we create disruption, but at the same time, awareness. This is one of the ways that we do it here in Ireland. We also have been in a situation where we have locked ourselves, basically physically uh, put ourselves in, in passive resistance, uh, where basically we block a, a space. In this case, it was the doll uh, when we created Re- Rebellion Week 2, and we said that we will move, basically. And uh, that brought very much attention, you know, not just uh, uh, to, to people around it, but also to media that came to, to see what is happening there and why we are doing it. And then uh, five people got arrested at the time. And then uh, from the last three years uh, that we've been together, so uh, around 12 people have been arrested. Now, I have to say that in the UK, it's, it's much, uh, you know, the, the numbers are bigger. So then uh, the city of London, for example, is much, much bigger. There's more people. So and I, was, I suppose the culture where there is more into, into more confrontation. Here in Ireland, you have to have a bit uh, of, you know, 
you have to be smarter here in Ireland, okay? So people don't like much confrontation. They, people understand why we are doing it, but there is a certain point that they can go against you, um, and, you know, publicly uh, b because these kind of techniques. So what we do then is just to target uh, the government or corporations or in, um, based on events or based on something that is going to happen. So we create a story for news or for people uh, and then we, we target them. So we target them, we can block that, that uh, if it's a conference, for example, that is happening and we just did it uh, recently at the, the National Biodiversity Conference where the government wanted to actually wanted to say everything is, is going well with biodiversity, we are doing the best for that. And then we said, this is not actually what is happening. So we went, decided then to secretly, uh, we set up a, um, an action and then we crashed the conference. Uh, we brought all the media on that. And instead of the government, you know, giving a, a message or so, positive, positive message about biodiversity. So we, it, we actually changed completely the messages uh, for that conferences. So it was not as successful as they wanted, but we brought the message of biodiversity is not okay. We are losing rapidly, uh, you know, species here in Ireland. Those are the facts, and we ne we need action now, basically. And that got they got us between 2.5 and 3 million of views between RTE news, uh, um, news talk, and other you know uh, newspapers and so on. So this is just one example. So we also have um, myself. I have glued myself against the Department of uh, Climate um, Action. We call it the Climate Inaction. And that was three years ago. We have uh, disrupted also conferences where the, uh, Richard Burton was at the time the Minister of uh, uh, Climate. So um, if ten people of ten of us basically going to the conference with fake names and a fake, uh, uh, you know, identification of a company, and then we disrupt uh, the forestry uh, conference at the time to tell, you know, obviously Burton that he was not doing enough for forestry. Uh, in Ireland, which is just only 10%, when the EU average is 30%, and only 2% out of the 10% are native uh, trees. The rest are basically Sika spores that is non-native from Ireland, and they use it basically to for the forestry industry to to create their, their furnitures and so on. So there's, there's a lot we've done. It's not only the blocking of roads, but also a lot of awareness, and we have crashed a lot of important conferences here here in Ireland and on the oil industry as well. So then uh, it's, it's different. In Ireland, it's actually different. And Gardi or the police are also treating us differently. So, Manuel, you, you touched on it there that, you you know, sometimes you get a bit of backlash. And I, I remember, I mean, I live in Madrid, but I remember watching on the um, the English news, um, you know, the manifestations that you did and the blockages that you did in London. And there were people... Um, you know, who'd, who'd basically, well, they've been attacked by the public. There's no other way of really putting it. And I, I wonder, you know, ultimately we are a mental health um, podcast, and I wonder how how do you and your colleagues uh, keep up morale, I guess, when, you know, ultimately if you achieved your goal, which is to save the planet and to stop, um, to halt what we're doing and driving off this cliff edge, um, you know, ultimately, you'd be helping all of us. It's not just yourselves that you're going, you're doing this for. You'd be helping even the naysayers, even people who don't believe in the environmental change. You'd be helping them too. So, how do you 
then when you, it gets literally chucked back in your face, how do you keep up morale? How do you motivate yourself to do the next blockage or the next event, you know, the month later when you know that potentially you could get arrested? And then not only that, but I think even worse in terms of morale is that the, you know, the public sometimes, some of them are turning against you and throwing paint in your faces and this, that and the other. How, how do you guys keep up your morale when, that, when those things happen? Yeah, so one of the pillars of Extinction Rebellion is to be um, uh, conscious to each other, okay? So we, we say that we are not alone. So when one person actually knows that they are doing the right thing and it's the right thing for all of us, despite other people cannot see it, we know that there's other people that feel the same as you. So then we support each other. And then we have to be very careful as well because that uh, brings us a lot of... Uh, uh, um, you know, pressure in our mental health. So we have a, a rule that every six months, you stay for six months continuously and active in Extinction Rebellion. And after six months, you have to stop. And just stop for three months or four months for the time that you need actually to recover, okay? And then you are going back as well. So that is why numbers are important. But when you are coming back, so then we have a specific group that is called an empathy group then actually works with you. So it talks to you. It's like, it's like a kind of psychologist. And it says, so what is, what is going on for you? So do you have a climate anxiety? Where from that is coming from, right? So uh, how can we deal with this? Uh, you know, if you require more, more time, so then actually you have to be away for a while until, until you feel okay to go back again. So we all, in, at, some, at some point, you know, you, you feel then... Um, we can contribute, but some people think that extinction rebellion is too radical for them to assume it because it's too, it's too much. It's too much burden for them as well. Other people also think, you know, we, we, are, we are in trouble. We are in big trouble. There is no way actually to solve this. So then they just give up, right? And then some, some people from extinction rebellion think that, that as well. So they start it, and because they don't see enough, result, enough results uh, at the beginning, so then they decided to withdraw and probably find another way to help. And that is okay as well. So not everybody is actually made for these kind of things, but, but the movement is there for everybody to try. And then you find your boundaries as well, you see? So then the people who stay basically is people who are actually made to, to resist, you know, these this kind of actions. And all the, not all the actions are arrestable. No, not all of them are. To be honest, most of the actions that we have here in Ireland, 70% could be non-arrestables, okay? And 30% will be arrestables at all. Uh, will be arrestable, sorry. So, and not everybody that enters extinction rebellion is an arrestable person. So you can, you can also support the arrestable person, but you don't have to be arrested as well, okay? But you see what is happening. And when you join extinction rebellion or any other movement, your, your eyes are getting completely open. So it's up to the person also how they assimilate or how they receive that message and how their body reacts to it. But at some point, we all trying. We all trying to, to do something about it. It doesn't matter if it's, it's an extension revealer or not, if it's uh, the techniques that you are agreeing with not, but we definitely need something radical right now uh, for the emergency that we have, right? So, but we support each other as much as we can. I got burned out, you know, Two years ago, one of the main uh, architects, let's say, of the Rebellion Week 2. And to do a Rebellion Week requires months of preparation and months of uh, strategic, uh, uh, you know, planning. Uh, you have to be very secretive. You have to know who is going to be arrested, who is not, how the Guardia is going to deal with it, uh, what are the consequences of this, 
you know, and it, it, that burden, you know, obviously was on my shoulders and together with another small group uh, between 10 or 50 people, 15 people actually built a full week here in Ireland. We also found uh, a huge boat that it was donated to us. It was for free, basically. I, imagine the amount of support that we have. We needed to paint it. We need to prepare it. Hide this from the guard for the guardie. And uh, until the previous date, and they found out uh, about the boat. So, um, so it, it was a shopper actually going um, above the boat, and then to, we, I needed to run down, uh, you know, to the place where we had it call RTE and say, do, do you want to have the exclusive of this boat? It's going to appear tomorrow in a very long week. So they came down and then they did a, a small, you know, segment saying, okay, there is a boat and it's going down uh, for the revealing week too. So that's the, was the only way actually to protect the boat at, at the time. So there's a uh, funny stories like this that we have. And then to, it was not taken by the Gardaí, right? Because it was out there on the public. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's mm. the way we, we cope with it. Thanks for that answer, Manuel. It's good to know that there is a consideration of people's health and well-being because it almost seems like anyone I know who has a strong interest in, in the environment has suffered from burnout because, like you said, getting getting accustomed to that level of information and pretty much every data set there is quite doomsday. It feels quite doomsday. It's hard to hold. Um, but it's good to know that you you have that kind of six months and then take a break. It's, that's nice. I... Uh, and you mentioned, you mentioned that particularly in Ireland, it's less the uh, the work is less about the general public, but more about what you what you classify as the offenders, the the main culprits of the climate the climate harm that we're doing to the big corporations, uh, to the forest uh, forestry corporations. I I wonder, after uh, X amount of years of you being involved in this, do you think? that that kind of combative approach with the corporations is succeeding? Like, do you think it's working? Uh, yes. Well, it has been always about the public. So at the beginning, we one of our, our three demands is just tell the truth. So but then we are asking that to the government to say the truth to everybody. So then everybody gets awareness on that. So the public is, is a main is the main focus here. However, we know that the government themselves are the offenders, right? So then, and corporations are also, you know, uh, quiet in all of this, and, and the government aid them as well. So then, it has worked so far. I mean, we have learned on, on, on this path of three years of how to do it. So we're getting better and better and how to transmit that messaging uh, without, without making the mistakes that we did at the beginning, right? So we need, really need to pick our fights, and it's working. It's working because we've been on the news. So there is, there is uh, very little. I mean, if you are, uh, if you ask here in Ireland about extinction rebellion, most people will be recognizing. They will have an opinion, if it is good or it is bad. They will have an opinion, and they know what's about extinction rebellion is about climate change. So th in their minds, they have climate change, and it, that's it, that to us is is a win because we need to start that conversation. Now, if we are affected in terms of the government, yes, we are. So we have proven that the government actually has taken directions on protecting more the environment. In fact, uh, the, the Green Party is in power today is because we started with this conversation three years ago. We did actions. Eamon O'Ryan, which is the, the Minister of, of Climate Actions right now, he was in our actions when I jump myself in, on the stage 
to put a big banner behind Richard Burton, Eamon O'Ryan was there filming. So he, he knew, he knows. And then his party went from 5% to 10%, 10, 10 or 15% actually popularity when Extinction Rebellion started doing all these actions. So people somehow addressed or, you know, basically said, okay, I'm, I'm all for the environment and I'm going to vote for the Green Party because that's the link they did, okay? Environment, Green Party, Environment, Green Party. And then Fina Fall and Fina Gelt needed to and a, a partner. And of course, climate change is a huge subject and probably they couldn't control and they haven't controlled for 30 years. So then they include the Green Party because they have enough seats. But they got enough seats is because people change their minds in, in regards of climate change. Extinction Rebellion helped on that. We canvas basically for uh, to be a climate voter, not, not necessarily the Green Party, but people understood that. And Fridays for Future also help a lot. The Greta, the Greta Thunberg movement also helped. So because we did it for the adults, let's say, and for the families, but the kids came from the schools with the Greta, Tem uh, Greta Thunberg, you know, movement, uh, uh, you know, message. And so they were tackled for everywhere. And the parents, obviously, you know, those linked to, to somehow to the environment to, to do the right thing. So they will, they will cast a vote for the Green Party. And that is why they are in, that empowered, not because they are the Green Party itself. You mentioned that popularity has increased uh, with the Green Party and there is more awareness of the climate uh, disaster that we have globally. Um, over the last few years, but and I and I agree with you that it can't be denied. I wonder also, though, has there been um, a steady section of the population that have almost been further divided in the opposite direction? Um, sometimes I feel like the narrative of Extinction Rebellion and other organisations is is kind of somewhat judgmental of say the average person, the average man in his 50 who drives a car or drives, uh, and, and he, he doesn't respond well to immediately feeling like uh, he is living wrongly. And I wonder that the population change that you have, that you have contributed to, the, the shift in terms of popularity and awareness, but has it also harmed uh, the ability or reduced the ability to get those on board that may be, that may respond better to a different rhetoric, a different tone. Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with what you're saying there. In fact, our techniques were very good at the beginning because it brought the shock for people. It says, okay, what's going on here, right? But now we, we need to start changing that techniques to be more um, compromising more, okay? So be more collaborative with another groups even engaging sometimes with the government and says, okay, you are doing well on this, but you are doing bad on this. And with the public, what happens is that we have touched basically the very core of the, scene, of the things that they really matter. For example, I have designed an action uh, to, target, to target pennies, right? And it was about fast fashion uh, because pennies actually produce cheap clothes that are not environmentally friendly. So... I designed this action and he said, okay, let's do a catwalk in front of the pennies in O'Connor Street. And that's what we did. We basically, you know, mock up basically the fact that, you know, there's a cheap cloth over here and you have to be more sustainable on that. That was the message. But then I have decided, you know what? This is actually not a threat enough for them. So just basically it's a show for them in front of the, 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 the shops. There's still people going in and out. So you know what? 
I'm going to take the decision now to go all inside. And that's what we did. So that we were between 30 and 40 people going inside of the shop with drums and then giving speeches as well. And we call the, the, the owner or the, the boss of the, the, the pennies, you know, to come down and talk to us about how sustainable you are in terms of this. So then they didn't come down, but it was very, very successful because people start actually taking pictures, putting it in social media. It was everywhere. It was everywhere. So news were there and the whole thing, because we did something bold. We, we, we didn't stay just outside and said, okay, we are here, we're doing this. We went inside completely on that, okay? So we came out and then we decided to do the same, but in Brown Thomas this time. So then we tried to target basically two to people here. So people that buy in pennies, but also buy in Brown Thomas. And Brown Thomas is not really fast fashion, but they have some products that have been produced, mass produced as well. And, and also they, they use, uh, you know, a lot of leather. So which is obviously um, attacking, you know, the animals and so on. So our backlash in social media, it was the people saying, what do you want, guys? Do you, where do you want me to buy, uh, you know, my stuff if you, are go if you don't want me to buy in pennies, right? It's like, it's like also tackling a Ryanair. So what, do you want me to fly now? So how can I fly? Because I, I cannot fly if it's no Ryanair. So this is the backlash that we have. And it says, we are not telling you that you have to stop. What we are telling you is, is that Pennies has to do the effort to make it more sustainable so that you, whatever you buy, so it's something that is good and in line with the environment. Also, you have to stop buying stuff every single week you know, from, from pennies or every time you fly over and so on. So we are actually starting the conversation, but the backlash from people, you know, for the ordinary people from that action, it was so impactful to us that we said, okay, we have to withdraw now because people are not ready to make a change uh, because they didn't understand, they didn't understand actually what doesn't mean, uh, you know, if you continue doing this. So they have to see the reality of, all these clothes be dumped somewhere and blocking something on someone dying based on that. So to, to make the, the difference, just to see the difference or the linkage with that. So the moral values and the practical economy stuff. So it wasn't, it wasn't much on that. So we learned from that action and we said, okay, we have to change the messaging, you know, to be more cohesive. So we do this for that reason. And that's what has happened. And it's going to revert back to you. Right. But that's the reason why I confrontational, because basically we go and hit it on the nail and we start a conversation. But that conversation can go everywhere. But from that action, nobody talks about Brand Thomas. Nobody talks about Brand Thomas. So what happens in Grand Thomas is what happens in pennies. You see, so it's a very popular idea that you are uh, you are hitting a brand that it touch everybody, but it has an, an environmental consequences consequences if you don't address that that uh, very much that that industry right or that company in that case and Ryanair is the other one you touch Ryanair people will sh shout at you you know uh, so but uh, there is a consequence on that as well and that is why people don't like it since rebellion because we call it out and we don't care we actually don't care how it what comes well we care but uh, we don't care uh, about to exactly how it's going to come so until, until something comes out and uh, aligns with it. So we have to be, be, be better than that. And, and that's what we've done in the last uh, year and a half. So, Manuel, I'm, I'm really glad you bring that point up because <clears throat> it's one of the things that I was going to ask you is that, that I, I, 
I do my bit, but I think I just do the, the minimum really, but that's because I can afford to do the minimum. I mean, I could do more, but I mean, financially speaking, so I, I, I'll give you some examples, you know, I'm looking to buy a car and I've made the decision uh, just because the way the future's going, because the way the environment is, that I'm not going to buy a car that isn't a hybrid. So, but th th that means that instead of buying a normal petrol car that I could just get second hand for two, three, four grand easily, I'm now going to have to save up to 15 grand or potentially more to get a hybrid. Now, I can do that because, you know, it'll take me a couple of years to save, but I can eventually save to that, to that amount. I don't, I don't buy fast fashion. I have like a shop that I have in Madrid that is like good quality fashion and I buy a t-shirt from there and it will last me potentially two, three years easily. But that top will cost me 60, 70 euros and... Uh, yeah, I can afford to do that, but someone else can't afford to do that. <clears throat> so these little things is that people, and this is why I, I talked to Jim about this, but a lot that, you know, we as the public almost feel like we always, it's always on us to like save the world, no matter what it is, whether it's the environment, whether it's, you know, fill in the blank, whatever the social topic is. And now with the cost of living crisis, how are you, how can you, I, I know this is a massive question, I think this might be like maybe your biggest task is like, I don't understand how you guys can tackle that. Because if you're, imagine a single mother with three children and you need to have a car to take your kids to school or to nursery, you can't afford to save 15 grand for a hybrid. So you're going to get the cheapest car that will take you from A to B without breaking down, which will inevitably be a petrol car. You can't afford to clothe your children in the expensive shops that take the time to you know, source their materials ecologically and environmentally friendly. So you're going to go to pennies or in, I imagine pennies is the Irish equivalent of Primark in, in England, you know, and you're going to clothe your kids for the whole year for 50 quid or whatever. You can't afford to buy fresh produce. You're going to give them a battery farm chicken because with a battery farm chicken, you can feed a family. So these, and that person will probably know that like, it's not environmentally friendly. They probably don't agree with it but they ha almost have financially speaking, no other choice. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see how, when a, the, when a lot of people are in that situation, how we can really move the needle because it's all right, me doing it. And you know, I'm just one person, but if there's 50 people who aren't doing it, I don't know how we move that needle. Yeah, basically uh, for that example that you put it about this lady having a kid and you know, having all these sacrifices, she actually doesn't need to think about it. Why? Because if we tackle the problem from the industry part and from the government part, so she will have the alternatives to go easily to Primark. And it says, I don't have to think about it because this is environmentally actually friendly. But to, to reach that point, right? So we need to actually start targeting those companies and the government. And it says you have to make the changes necessary so that for this lady with a small baby doesn't need to think about it. Okay? So right now, obviously, is for the cost of living and the whole thing. So obviously, it's attacking all of us. And then uh, she won't think about the environment, right? So she will think it's about the economic uh, uh, part of this. But the, the main point here is that if you address the environment, if you target actually those companies and the corporations that actually are creating all this mess uh, you know, by investing in fossil fuels, if you target the government, you know, and ask them to put a proper policies and also make it, you know, environmentally friendly, a strong environmental laws. So then everything else, it gets solved. 
So I'll give you the, the example. So the, the everybody says, oh, the cost of living is going up and up. And uh, yes, but you have to see that there is a direct relationship between the cost of living and our dependency on oil and gas, right? So if, what environmentalists is saying, if you shift from oil and gas away, if you are away from that and you invest in renewables, we don't have the problem because all the costs are going to, or everything is going to run on renewables and renewables are cheap and you, and gas and, and fuel are dependent of the international markets rates. And those are way up is because the war between Ukraine and Russia. So it's our dependency on gas and fuel that are attached in with these international markets, the problem. So if you become independent in terms of energy by investing in renewables and solar and wind and, and green hydrogen and all of this, you don't have to worry about it. And there is no problem in terms of gas supply because our gas comes from the UK and, North, and the North Sea through two pipelines that go through Scotland. So it's not the supply the problem. The problem is, is the price, what we are paying for it because the markets are just pushing us quite up. So if you address the environment again, going to renewables, you don't have the problem of the gas, of, of the fuel. That's basically the idea, is connecting these two. It's not the money, it's not the economic part. It's to address the environment to make it cheaper for all of us. That the, the money, it, comes, it, it goes down when you invest on the environment itself. So then, in your example with the, with the mom and the kids, so in the future, she doesn't need to think about all of this because transport is going to be so cheap, it's running on renewables, uh, you know, and there's examples right now where, for example, uh, the government is just charging nine euros a ticket, for example, in Germany. So they did that, obviously, you know, to reduce the cost and so on. But they know that investing on renewables, that could be a permanent solution. Or the Vienna model. The Vienna model is 365 euros a year, which means one euro per day. And all this is possible in the future if you invest on renewables. So if you can make those measures, not because the war between Ukraine and, and, and uh, Ukraine and Russia, and because of the situation we have in gas, but uh, if you invest in renewables, you will have that as a permanent solution. So in your example, that lady or that mom is going to pay only nine euros for one month, uh, you know, every, every year, for example. So and it's, 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 it's obvious. We have just to make the connection. And Manuel, uh, you know, the... This might sound like a really simple question, but I think it needs to be asked is we've known about renewables for 50 years or more. Yeah, it's not like this is some new thing. It's not like someone discovered wind energy yesterday. So the question is, and, and, I, and I, I think no one can dispute what you're saying. You know, if we ran on solar or wind or, you know, all these different types of renewables, obviously all the prices would come down. So when it's so simple and when governments have huge throughout history, have always had huge problems with their budgets. And you'd always think that a government would like to save money wherever possible so they could spend it on, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, defense or you know, whatever it is that they deem necessary. Why haven't? any governments really why didn't they make the shift 50 years ago 
what what's what's this why have they all been so greedy why have they maintained the status quo and gone with this oil which have been predicted that this will all eventually will run out and in the meantime the cost will go up and up and up whether there's a war or not the the price will go up as the as the supply diminishes and yet we've got wind in england or in spain you've got the sun and so on and so forth why is no com um, why is no a country gone you know what this we're, we're driving off a cliff edge here forget about the environment i'm not even talking about like the environmental benefits just purely fiscal benefits here mm-hmm. we're driving off a cliff edge why don't we invest now and then, and then we'll be market leaders we'll be world leaders and we can all that money that we spend on oil and gas we can then spend it on housing and this that and the other and we'll be one of the the best countries in the world why has no country done that because it seems so simple well, there are, there are a few countries that already did it at the time. Uh, Costa Rica, for example, instead of having an army, they have decided actually to invest on their forests. And now they are one of the countries that are on zero, basically. Bhutan is another example. Suriname is another example. So there are two or three countries that actually have done it, right, at the time. So uh, that's the first thing. Second, why... Uh, governments haven't done it because there is no political will and also their, their vision it was very short. So normally governments go from four and five years in each country. So they, they will change their, you know, their plan based on the economical social situation. But the environment, it was not a quarter because scientists will say in 30 or 40 years, that's going to happen. So it's not going to happen to me now. OK, why do I have to put any plan right now or any political will to solve something that I'm not going to see in 20 or 30 years, okay? And third, the technology wasn't as cheap as it is now at the time, okay? So to create a solar panel at the time or to create a, a turbine wind, so it was more and more difficult and the technology was not as developed as now. So you required a lot of investment over time to, get a, a, to, to, to reach a point. So when we just say, okay, now renewables are as cheap as oil so we can switch. Another thing is that uh, companies at the time, oil, it was just cheap. You know, U.S. needed, you know, to feed those big cars. And, you know, uh, China, it was on the rise as well, slowly, slowly, after the 90s, uh, on the 2000s. So they were economists and they were, you know, driving, you know, very fast. And they needed to, you know, get uh, energy from somewhere. So coal, uh, you know, oil. And gas, they were, you know, their friends at the time. And there were wars in between that actually put the dominion of the United States on getting those, on those, those renewables. And those, sorry, in those uh, oil industries. So there was no political will. There was a lot of social problems. There was so short-minded in the way how they approach it as well. Uh, and there was no really conscious about, uh, you know, the climate. Uh, you know, I would say that Greenpeace at the time, it was the only... Uh, big uh, organization that people can recognize and the Sea Shepherds then it also came from the co-founder came from Greenpeace as well so uh, it's, it's, it, it, it was not just actually the time so then if you see humans beings uh, you know history so you have to um, we have to reach a point when we are completely in big trouble to do something and it happens actually in the 1980s uh, the beginning of the 90s with the CFC the awesome uh, hole that we have. So when then we realized that, you know, the, this gas actually was opening a hole on, on above, above us, you know, the CFC. And then uh, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher came up and, and he says, okay, we have to do something about it. And they have banned that gas 
at the time and when they, we recovered the hole over there. So only when you are in that big trouble is that when we act. So we are more reactive than proactive. But at the same time, I have to say that that industry didn't suffer but moving or removing that the CFC, you know, away from, from, from uh, fridge, uh, refrigerators or any other machines as well. They didn't suffer much. Now, the situation right now with the oil companies, it, what, we are, what we're saying is that you have to completely stop the whole industry. I mean, it's a complete stop because we, are, we cannot pump more CO2 on the, on the environment. And that is more difficult than try to remove one single gas than it was, you know, damaging the environment. So that is why we haven't done it. That is why. And that is why civil disobedience is very important now. We have to reach the point where I have to say, I have to put myself on the line to say, stop, stop, right? And we do it in the nonviolent way. I mean, we, we, we allow ourselves to get arrested and it's, it's not really something that yeah. is uh, yeah. criminal. And I, I wonder, I mean, I always try to find like a, a silver lining to even the greyest of clouds. And sometimes the silver linings are so thin. I think sometimes they're a figment of my imagination. But listen, everyone, I think, would agree here that and anyone who's listening that what's going on in the Ukraine is absolutely abhorrent. But I wonder if one of the very, very few silver linings of what is going on over there, like you say, we have to be in a serious predicament before we as humanity make a decision to move. And I wonder, before, I don't think many people in the public, at least, saw the environmental um, movement or saw the environmental changes as a defense risk, right? Whereas now we're seeing that, you know, we get all of our gas from Russia, or a lot of countries do, Germany and so on, and that can be a defense risk now. So now they're having to cut it off. I wonder, do you think, even though we've been pushed into this corner, it wasn't something that we did of our own volition, but do you think that a positive potentially of this of the ukrainian war and the fact that we're now trying to oust russia and cut off their gas as a way to stop them from from carrying on in the ukraine that that will actually push us forward and it will kind of accelerate the things that you guys have always been hoping for that, that we'd move to renewables because countries are now saying i can't rely on china or russia because if i do and then they go and start world war three for example where does that leave me as a country i need to harness my own energy where would be it wind sun wherever it is that you're you know based on the earth do you think that this is now going to accelerate and push us forward and so now you're going to see massive changes where countries go look we need to do this because for our own safety as a country and then obviously we'll get the benefits of the price and also the environmentalism as well yeah that's actually a good question um but at the same time you have to reflect so if human beings react always so then are we really prepared to do a, a change a proper change i mean we can try probably go over the line but are we going to really maintain it until the next problem is coming along so we have to fix this right from the beginning and be conscious that we are doing this change and we try to protect the environment is because we feel it's the right thing to do not because we are pushed to it Okay, so another thing is then I don't think this war has helped because now uh, companies, uh, all companies have made much more profit than ever. You now Shell has done something like seven billion extra of the natural, you know, normally BP five point two billion. So they actually are taking advantage of this situation to for them to make more and more money. It's not helping. It's actually accelerating. The fact that we are extracting more oil now from different sources because we try to stop, you know, Russia in this case. Okay, 
Second, they try to push it now in the terms of LNG terminals, which is uh, liquid uh, not, not, uh, oh LNG, a liquefied uh, gas, uh, natural gas, basically, right? Which is uh, those terminals means that uh, in in order for us to go into renewables, we need a transition fuel, and this guy, it, it is, this is uh, the gas, basically, it's a gas. Uh, so they, what they're trying to do now is to create terminals to import that gas from different sources or from different places to avoid Russia. But at the same time, when you try to import gas, uh, it, it releases methane in between, which is a very worse, you know, gas in, on the uh, an atmosphere, first of all. So they're accelerating that process, and that is really bad. Second... Uh, when they extract that gas, they're coming from fracking sources. Um, fracking is a method that they use and is very, very pollutant to the environment. So fracking is banned here in, in Ireland, but uh, the government is okay to, to create terminals to bring gas from fracking sources from the United States into Ireland. So that, that creates even more problems for the country because it's, 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 it's more complex to go into renewables straight and try to use the gas as a way to go out. That's, that is why the oil industry now is focusing on gas and saying that gas is a green, uh, uh, you know, a, a green method as a source, which is not the case. We have to start thinking to go into green, um, uh, green hydrogen, which is uses water, and from water we can generate electricity. Okay, so then it, it, it is not helping. It is go the, the, this industry is going to die at some point, but it's going to be a very hard die. So we need to go legal on them. We have to fight this on the courts. We have to fight this on the streets. We have to, we have to you know, physically put ourselves there and say enough is enough. We have to vote for um, 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 representatives and, and governments that actually want to do something for the environment. And that example, so the New Zealand, uh, the New Zealand leader um, what is her name? Uh, Jasmine. I Ahern. Ahern. Yeah, exactly. Mrs. Ahern. So she's doing a fantastic job in terms of the environment. And the size of New Zealand is more or less the size of uh, Ireland. And the population is more or less the same. So they also rely on agriculture like we do. So they, there's a very much similarities. But the, the differences between the one country and another one is basically the, the government, you know, their system. The, the, um, the amount of laws that they're putting in place, and they're doing very, very well. And then here in Ireland now, we are more permissive. So we are more friends of the United States, the UK, and if they go in one way, so we are going in that way as well. So this war is just not helping, but at the same time, uh, it's, it's bringing a lot of things, come, uh, you know, alive. And, and then, uh, you know, we, we, at least it's clear for us actually to, to know what are we going to face off in the future. Thanks for that, Manuel. I just have a few points on that. One, uh, we got it wrong. It's Caroline Ardern. We don't want any of our listeners to think that we don't know the name of the New Zealand president. We do. Uh, the second yeah. point was, I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad that you brought up um, the kind of problematic approach of reacting constantly. And I think that that's actually been a critique of Extinction Rebellion in part is that it feels like it's very reactive, like no, stop, no, and less of a um, take a step back, a calculated, a solution-based approach. But hear, hearing from you, and I understand that it's you can't paint the whole movement with, with one brush. 
But I guess, obviously, I'm confident that there are very smart people within Extinction Rebellion and in Ireland, including yourself. And I wondered, have you guys factored in the potential turmoil uh, economically that might happen um, during this transition period that you're talking about? Um, because um, it, it you... seems to me that it's a, there's a strong likelihood that it may mean a lot of loss of jobs, a completely restructuring of how uh, we, how the economy functions, and surely that would lead to a lot of economic instability and chaos. And I wonder, I guess I've heard it from a few people, a few maybe like economists just think that, hey, I understand that you want the fracking to stop and this stop, but there's just so much invested in it that if we were to just take it away relatively quickly, that there would just be so many holes. Yeah, well, we base uh, our actions also uh, on what the scientists are telling us. So the scientists are telling us that we have only two years to turn this around. So basically we had to stop completely uh, the pumping more CO2 into the, uh, you know, into the atmosphere. So which means that then um, because we, the government has been very slow and, you know, corporations also have stopped this progress. So then they stop, stop, then we say in Extinction Rebellion, it becomes more louder and louder because we don't have the time. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna lose this battle completely. Um, and this war, let's say, you know, um, protecting the environment, if we don't actually radically say we have to start, you know, slowing down, but fast. It is a fact right now that the icing caps are going to melt. That is already is a big loss for humanity and from, you know, biodiversity itself. And we did that. And because we didn't say stop, stop 30 years ago in the way we are doing it now, so that is what we have lost out of it. So then to, our clients at the end are not human beings. Our clients are the trees, the dolphins, the whales, the ocean, you know, the biodiversity itself. And none of them have come back to us saying uh, or complaining about what we're doing. None of us have come back to say that. So because we relied on nature to live, right? It's not a... We don't need, I mean, actually, we need nature. Nature doesn't need us at all. So then we have to protect the environment no matter what. So if that causes, you know, a, a bit of anxiety on people, it's, it's not because we are just crazy and go out there and it says, oh, we are on in, in big alarm. It's because actually scientists are telling us that we are so slow in progress and we have the lack of urgency and the, the lack of political will then we have to do this drastically, you know, from our side, from the bottom up until the top down, you know, can start, you know, uh, assimilating, you know, the big changes that we, re that we require. And there's a big, huge failure in the system that we have right now. It's not a perfect system, right? But uh, we, need, we need to start, you know, addressing the environment radically. So then to, it doesn't matter what the economy says. So my message to economists is, if you don't protect the environment right now, it won't ha you won't have economy to save. There are no jobs on a dead planet. So don't worry about the money. Actually, you have to put more money protecting the environment so that you have an economy in the future to save. Okay? So that is our messaging. Simple. 
I appreciate that, man. Well, I, you know, um, one thing I also want to uh, congratulate, or I guess I say respect hugely about pretty much every member of Sutton Rebellion is the willingness to sacrifice um, convenience. Like you said, I mean, there's a, a steady percentage of people that are willing to be arrested and there's just a lot more uh, things that people are willing to do because they've acknowledged that there's this big potentially catastrophic thing coming in the very near future and they're saying i'm willing to sacrifice my personal um aims for my life for the bigger purpose and i even you know i've read several articles about what's happening in south america and how activists there are almost like disappearing in colombia and places like that because they're saying hey this is wrong and then they're just disappearing and that's what comes up for me when you speak about this i wonder is it that our culture is has become more and more individualistic and in tandem with that our our consistent uh, connection with nature has kind of steadily declined over the last few hundred years that we're like unconsciously of course i don't think many people like would say this out loud but unconsciously you're going um i kind of want to live this kind of life and if that happens in the future, happens in the future. And I wonder if, I wonder for that section of the population, do you think there's another way that we can kind of encourage a lifestyle change rather than uh, a quite abrupt, hey, you have 15 years, or in your case, you were saying we have two years to turn this otherwise. Because for that section of the population, it seems that it doesn't really work for them. Yeah, actually, uh, it's a very valid point what you're saying there. So we, ho we lost that connection with nature, but uh, also with ourselves and the collective. So it seems to me that people, as you said, uh, we are so uh, resourceful. Let's say we have it all, all like this, you know, just I want to buy this, I want to buy that. And you, you have actually the resources to do it. Then we forget that everything is interconnected and there are consequences out of, it, or out of that. It also seems to me that uh, we are not thinking above ourselves. So it's, it's always about, you know, our bubble. It's, our, it's uh, about our family, perhaps. It goes as max of that. But uh, there, there is the meaning of life is basically not about acquiring assets, but uh, to think about the other. You know, it's, it's actually, we are here actually to help the other. And everything that nature provides us is a gift. Is something that we get it for free, basically. They are not charging us for that, you know. We have commercialized that. And then we see it as an asset. And that's what we think that as a landlords, we take, take and take because we thought it was for free and it's all out there for us. But that's not the case. The case is that we have to raise awareness about ourselves and think about the other and then to, supersede ourselves on saying, you know what, the we, purpose of our life is actually gift, right? It's actually to share. It's actually to be grateful that Mother Nature has given us a gift of uh, air that we can breathe to survive or food to provide us food, uh, you know, to eat and for us con to continue because we really don't provide much for the nature. But nature is providing us all for us. So then we became, you know, with this big ego, taking things all over because we think we can't and we are very smart. But actually, we are not really smart. Nature is fighting back now. 
And, uh, and what it's telling us is that you won't be here, you know, in the future if you don't really protect us. And it happens with the bees, uh, or it's going to happen with the bees. If they die, we die with them. It's happening with the ocean. If the ocean, you know, dies, we will die with the ocean because 70% uh, of the oxygen we breathe comes from the ocean, actually, not from the trees. So there's a phytoplankton, which is a plant and it comes from the bottom, that covers 70% of our oceans and that produces the oxygen that we breathe. It's actually not the trees, but we don't see it. And if we don't see it, we don't protect it. And because we have overfishing and bottle trolling that destroys all of that, so it's taking oxygen from our lungs. So we don't see it because we don't appreciate it. And uh, our awareness is all about our bubble. And we have to, to, you know, the meaning of life, basically, for me in that case, is, is overcome all of that. And then it's, the, it's about the other. It's not about yourself. Yeah, man, well, I like this. I like how you're speaking now. I like, I don't know if you've come across the work of Charles Eisenstein. Uh, and he has the book, uh, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. And I noticed that several people that came across his work resonated with his kind of approach to the climate uh, situation compared to more of a combative um, activist approach where he's not saying, you know, because a lot of people think, oh, this is being taken from me now. Like, oh, I want to be able to go on these holidays. I want to be able to fly here. I want to be able to do this. I, I'm, I feel like everything's being taken from me. Whereas what you're kind of saying here and what I hear from Charles Eisenstein's work is actually there's, there's, a, there could, there's a more beautiful world if we are more connected to the natural world, like the Mother Earth, as you say. And I wonder, do you feel like that is getting enough kind of airplay in Extinction Rebellion? Because I really resonate with what you're speaking about now, how, how you're talking about it now. But I wonder, is that coming through enough, do you think, in, in Extinction Rebellion's movement? Uh, it does a certain point, okay? But I remember that Extinction Rebellion, you know, gets people from every walks of life and everybody has an opinion different approaches as well. So it's very difficult actually to get into a consensus. So that is why we have three demands and we have 10 principles. So when we all respect all of that, so we're on the same page to have a conversation that is aligned with it, right? So then, for example, if someone comes with the idea of being violent, you know, to, so, so it cannot be part of Extinction Rebellion. So that would be another movement, right? So, but it's not part of Extinction Rebellion. So then the conversation of being violent in Extinction Rebellion, it doesn't make sense at all. It com completely gets rejected in that, in that case. And it's, 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 you can hear it and you see the signs out of it. And maybe there are examples where you can say, okay, justifies a bit of violence, actually. Physical violence, you know, to go into this point, maybe. But that's not the case of Extinction Rebellion. So we, we accept people then at least you know, respect the 10 principles and agree with the demands that we have. And then we start the conversations from there. So, but there's air space for everybody on that. So for example, if one of the principles is to be inclusive, so you, we, that, that's actually uh, a standard universal, I would say, you know, agreeable, you know, uh, let's say principle for everybody. Um, Non-violent for most people, 90, 90% or 95%, that's agreeable as well. So then there's a plenty of room actually to have those conversations and take all the ideas in. The problem is, is to get consensus on how to approach this. 
how to approach it. But we all agree that we have to do something about it, you see? And the appreciation about nature actually gradually becomes bigger and bigger and you are more aware by listening to other people being in an action and then seeing all of this happening around you and the main core of all of this is that we are doing it for nature. So then at some point you ask yourself in Extinction Rebellion if that is aligned with your moral stance and this is the right thing to do and then you will have a limit uh, about uh, how far you're going to go. But, but uh, everything cements, you know, an agreeable situation where actually we are happy to be there is how to approach it and how to take the opinions of everybody within the action of what we ever want to do, you know? That's all. Thanks, man. I appreciate that answer. I, I just have a few more and then we're going. Um, I guess one is that what comes to mind is the, these uh, the three demands and then the 10 principles and like you said, there's a real commitment to openness and in in inclusivity and that there's no leader in Extinction Rebellion. Are there sometimes coordination issues as a result of this kind of commitment to inclusion? Is it is is are there sometimes where you think there's a coordination, a lack of coordination? Uh, yeah, there is there is no lack of coordination because we assign roles, okay? And those roles doesn't mean that you are a leader, you are a facilitator. So we're going to facilitate an action based on the role that we have, or that, that I have, for example. So if I'm a facilitator of an action, I will. I'll, what I'm going to do is just coordinate everybody's opinions and everybody's approach. And each person in that group is going to take a role. So one is social media, the other one is going to be art, the other one is going to be a political strategy, the other one is going to be finance, the other one is going to be the assessment of the area of the action itself. So I'm taking all that ideas and make a, a bit of sense on it. It doesn't make me a, the leader, I'm just facilitating, you know, that, that, that session of, uh, in, that, in that specific moment. But in the next action, somebody else will facilitate. So we exchange roles and we learn from each other and we learn about the role itself. So everybody has the same opportunity. Now, I have to say that some people, because their characters are more uh, dominant than others, okay? So then what we do as a facilitator is that if someone is speaking too much or have a strong opinion about it, so we, we actually don't give the, the, the space, you know, to all... To, to shadow basically other people. And then we always ask for anybody that haven't spoken, that is your time to speak now and to say something about it. So then they come in or they, or they don't come in because they may not have an opinion as well. But yeah, they, they, some people are more you know, dominant than the others. They have a probably better understanding than the others. And then, but we realize as well that there are people that they need to thrive as a person so we always give them the opportunity. We analyze that. Uh, we open a space and we say, okay, now everybody's silence. The people who haven't spoken, now there's opportunity you know, to say something, to enrich it or to make an opinion about it. You don't have to say. So the facilitator is actually the person who looks after all of this. Again, is not the leader, but for that specific uh, action, facilitates the action. So that's, that's what we do, basically. That's that's very nice to hear. I appreciate that. Um, and then, Mama, I just have to ask you, kind of uh, candidly, can I? 
what do you do on the bad days? Because, you know, everyone I know that is um, reading about the, the climate uh, data and is trying their best in any way they can, what, like, there's inevitably days where you just go, oh, God, this feels kind of insurmountable. You know, this means feels a little hopeless sometimes. Can I ask, is it, what what do you do when you've come across those feelings? And is there something that you always come back to to re-energize and rejuvenate and be re-inspired? Uh, absolutely. Uh, the first thing I do is go for a walk and look at nature. And I said, uh, you know, uh, we probably lost a lot of battles, but, but we, we, we think that we can win at the end. And at the end of the day, even if we lost this, this, this battle, we all will realize that oh, we, we lost something very beautiful. So next time when something happens, this cannot happen again, okay? So then uh, uh, we have to do all this together. If it would have be just in my hands, so that would have been solved very quickly, many things, but, but if it's not, so, and th that's a good thing as well, because it's, it's, it's the work, everybody shares the same space and the same, beautiful you know uh, nature on us so it's all responsibilities you know it's the, everybody's responsibilities to do the same but what i do personally basically is just go and admire nature and i say it's okay we lost this time but uh, you know you give me enough strength actually to carry on and then when i look at that people doing the effort and when other other people celebrate the simple things of life then it's said uh, you know to be in a place where there is no war or they have something to eat and all of that, that always brings me the, the energy to say, there's a hope here. There's a bit of hope here. And, and sometimes, and, and I think this myself as well, sometimes it's good not to have hope because that triggers action. So when hope dies, action begins. Action begins is what we say. So sometimes I get pushed so badly into the corner that actually the survival you know, instincts comes along and I said, okay, I have to fight back. And that brings me back at some point. And, and, if, if, and if, if I feel that I've been burning out, so I stop, relax, come back again and continue. But, but there is no doubt for anybody, for anybody in, in, as an activist or for people who understands a bit of nature and how important it is, that we are doing this for the right reasons. And, and we won't give up. It's just we won't. We can't. We can't give up, you know? Great answer. That's the perfect place, I think, to leave it there. Yeah, thanks, um, Pamela. You've been great on this podcast. I think you've inspired a lot of people to think about the actions and, and what they do on their day-to-day, -day, even if they're not going to become an activist necessarily, but maybe just ways that they can improve and help the environment through you know, their shopping and, and their lifestyle choices. Um, you've been absolutely fantastic. We're, we're going to leave the links um, in the description for people who want more information. Maybe Jim and I haven't asked uh, the questions that you want answering so we'll leave the links there where you can find even more information um but i just want to say the time to say uh, muchas gracias uh, it's been amazing to have you on de, de nada de nada uh, y lo que quiero decir i want to say at the end basically is that thank you to you guys because you are helping us actually to put the platform you know to spread the word and that is really really important okay so then thank you to you guys because you are doing the job then then it's required actually to to bring awareness on climate change so well done well done to you thank you okay thank you it's the absolute thanks, least we could do but thank you very much right guys see you then thank you